Hey there, thanks for joining us. This podcast is put out into the world by Living Water Community Church, located in Ypsilanti, Michigan. I'm Pastor Clark Cothern. If you'd like to know more about Living Water, or if you'd like to drop us a note, or if you've got a question, or if you'd like to have us pray for you, head on over to lw-cc.org. Now, let's join today's podcast in progress. As I mentioned, wrapping up 1 Peter, so whatever Bible you brought with you today, if you'd like to turn there, I'd like for you to camp out on those last few verses, 5 through 14 of chapter 5. And uh, I'm going to start by just reading that passage to us. I'm reading from the NIV version, Peter's final words in this, his first letter. In the same way, You who are younger, submit yourselves to the elders. All of you, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, because, and he quotes from Proverbs, God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him, because he cares for you. Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. And the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. With the help of Silas, whom I regard as a faithful brother, I've written to you briefly, encouraging you and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you her greetings. And so does my son Mark. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. Last week, we looked at the elders. This week, we're looking at the youngers. My son shares my name, as many of you know, and so sometimes when I'm corresponding with different people, I will sign it Clark the Elder, so that they will differentiate between which of me is which. And Simon Peter was talking about this weighty responsibility of eldership and leadership in the church in the many places that would have received this letter. But then he's also turning that around a little bit and saying, now I want you younger folks to respect those elders And understand that by humbling yourself and giving in to their authority, submitting to their authority willingly, things will go better for you. He was saying some very practical, wise things in this book. And then he goes on because it's almost as though he's got this stream of consciousness happening. I kind of think sometimes the Apostle Paul and the Apostle Peter both may have had just a little touch of ADD. Although I'm not sure. And yet it makes sense because as you trace the threads of their thought... 
there are some things that really make sense, and we're going to see one of those threads that have four distinctly very separate and seemingly unrelated uh, concepts, and yet they all coalesce really nicely. It's kind of like good ingredients in a really nice Thanksgiving dinner. First of all, humility is a remedy for anxiety, he says in verses 5 through 7. We often will extract verses that will fit nicely on a coffee mug, like, cast your anxiety on him, for he cares for you. That's a great coffee mug verse, right? But sometimes it's great to surround that with the context of the other verses and the other thoughts that Peter has been writing about up to this point. And we start to see that he's saying that the way you do that has to do with our attitude, and it starts with humility. If somebody said, oh, just cast your anxiety on the Lord, he's got you covered, I would say, that's great. How do I do that, though? And that's kind of what Peter is after, is trying to give us the how as we look at these verses together. He says, this is the same Peter who had said, For we did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Why am I throwing that in there? It's a verse that we studied way back at the beginning of this particular book. Because this was the Simon Peter who was young and impetuous and was not submitting to authority. He was on the Mount of Transfiguration, which is what he's referring to when he said we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Looks what else happens on that Mount of Transfiguration with the young, untransformed Simon Peter. He, meaning Jesus, received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory you recall, if you listen to that first one way back when, that they were on the Mount of Transfiguration, and Moses and Elijah appeared before them, Jesus Christ became transfigured. He was like some other being or form, almost as though Peter was given, a, and James and John, those three were up there with them, a glimpse into this heavenly glory, what it's going to be like, because they recognized these guys. So they were recognizable, but they were different. They were not in an earthly form especially Jesus. And this is the only uh, miracle that occurs in the New Testament that actually happened to Jesus in quite this way. It's a very unique miracle. There were other things that happened. Remember one that sounds familiar to that back at the baptism of Jesus when the dove came down representing the Holy Spirit and landed on Jesus. And then this voice spoke again. So it was both then at the baptism, at the beginning of Christ's ministry, and now on the Mount of Transfiguration, where this voice from heaven comes down saying basically, hey, listen to him. I know you revere the law and the prophets represented by Moses and Elijah, but this is my son. You need to make him preeminent. You need to submit to his authority. Listen to his words. He's the only way that you're going to get rid of this anxiety that you're carrying around with you. And the impetuous Peter, of course, is going to blurt out, hey, this is great. Let's build some tabernacles up here and camp out for a while. Let's grab a hold of this mountaintop experience and stay singing Kumbaya for three more weeks. And he says, nah, you haven't quite caught it yet. Peter was needing to learn that to trust Christ means we can't stay at the mountaintop all the time. We have to roll up our sleeves, get down into the valley, there will be suffering, and there is no life eternal without the death of Jesus Christ. Christ had been trying to reveal his plan. Peter had rebuked him and said, oh, there's got to be some other way, Christ. Jesus says, get thee behind me, Satan. And then he says, this is what God says from the voice from heaven that came down on that Mount of Transfiguration, saying, this is my son, 
whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Peter writes about this after the fact because it was a defining moment for him. He's learning to submit to authority, and Jesus is the ultimate authority to whom we need to submit. He says, we ourselves heard this voice. They're eyewitnesses, or in this case, ear witnesses. We heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on that sacred mountain. So Moses and Elijah, yes, Lon the prophet, they were good things. God put them there for some reason, but they were all to point to Jesus Christ, who is the only way. Peter's anxiety, as we can see through all the things that used to trip him up as he was being transformed into the Peter that we're reading about now, Peter's anxiety was caused by trying to do things in his own way. He wanted to be in control, even including trying to rebuke Jesus to tell him there's got to be a better way than him having to suffer and die on a cross. I think that's probably true for all of us. The things that I get the most anxious about are when I'm trying to control something and I feel like I cannot control this. Peter's advice, verses 6 and 7, they go together. Humble yourself and cast your anxiety on him. Both of those concepts are wrapped together. So by saying, in order to get rid of your anxiety and cast it upon the Lord, how do you do that? Well, you humble yourself by admitting, God, I don't know better than you do what's supposed to happen here. And so I'm going to trust that you know my situation better than I do. I humble myself. I ask you to take control I'm going to stop trying to muscle my way through and do this thing in my own strength or in my own way. I want to hear clearly from you. How do you want me to proceed in this God-sized problem? Because it's too big for me. Humble yourself, and that's how you cast your anxiety upon him. Trust only comes with humility. Just came to mind again, bing, ADD. I'm going to trust it's the Holy Spirit at work through ADD. He can use anything. I had shared this a few months ago, and I like this uh, illustration because I read it uh, about some guy that was in the Navy SEALs, and they had this very difficult boot camp training. One of the trainings that they do, because they have to do a lot of swimming, because they are SEALs, and they throw them into this pool, and they've got some weights on them, so it's very difficult, and then they tie their hands and feet so that they can't move. And they say, now, you've got to survive like this for X number of minutes. can't remember how long it was. It seemed like an impossible task. And so they, they quickly found out by looking at the others that were doing it right that the only way for them to survive this test was to give up trying to fight and trying to keep themselves afloat. Because it's hard to tread water when you're just trying to do the dolphin kick and your arms don't work. So what they would do is they'd take a good deep breath and let themselves sink all the way down until they were resting comfortably on the bottom with their feet touching the bottom of the pool. And they would hold their breath as long as they could. Some of them had really good breath control. They'd go for two minutes. And then they would push up, and their bodies would come up just enough so they could catch another big deep breath, and they'd sink back down again. That's how they solved the problem, is by surrendering. And that speaks to me because when I see Simon Peter wrestling with his anxiety and anger and control issues, I see him learning that he's got to relax and surrender into God's grace and say, I can't do this anymore, God. And God says, good, I got you. Like the little kid that was trying to experience snow for the first time. And he's standing out on the deck and he's all bundled up like that kid in the Christmas story. And he's trying to figure it out and he's putting his tongue out 
and he can feel the cold landing on his tongue, and he's trying to figure out what to do with the snow, and he's going like that. And finally, he just surrenders to it, because it's about two feet deep, and he just goes, ah, and he falls back, and he's caught by the snow. And I think that Peter is trying to show us, after he has learned to do this a number of times, even after the water walking incident, after being forgiven, having denied Christ because he was so anxious and fearful and he let the fear get the best of him. That really, true trust only comes with humility when we have to admit, I can't do this. I don't know enough. You're bigger, you're smarter, you're more powerful. God, I have to trust you in this thing. These are four defining times that I've mentioned in the course of many sermons in this congregation. My first baby, sick and in the hospital, just a few weeks old, didn't know what the outcome was going to be. Change of major in college because I was just floundering, and though I loved what I was studying, I knew it wasn't for me. So afraid that my parents were going to be disappointed because I changed my major, and yet it was that change of major that directed me into what became a music ministry for the first 10 years of my ministry career, and then eventually into the pastorate. Search for a spouse, had two, tell me, nah. And I was heartbroken, but if I hadn't been said no to twice, I wouldn't be with the person that I've been with for 41 plus years. Moving back to Michigan from New York, really catastrophic time, one of the most emotional, anxiety-driven times in my life, 28 years ago. And God took control of every one of those things, but only when I surrendered and said, I quit. I quit trying to do this on my own. God, I've got to have your intervention here because I can't do it. It was almost almost like he was going, that's what I've been waiting for. Now I can do what I'm so good at. I was waiting for you to surrender to me so I could do what I've been trying to get you to do all along. Secondly, resist the enemy. By what you feed your mind. This is why I say there are four concepts, and they all come in these verses, 8 through 11. Here are the connecting ideas. Have an alert and sober mind. There's an enemy like a lion seeking whom he may devour. Resist by standing firm, and others are suffering too. And you kind of go, ping, ping, ping. Where are you going with these, Peter? These seem very unrelated, and yet they're all related. And part of that is, When you start reading scriptures and you've read enough of them that all of a sudden you go, oh, he's borrowing an idea from over here and he's sandwiching it with this over here. He's getting some new ingredients, but they're all reflecting back on something that he's been taught by the master. And that's the case here. We start to see a couple of things. If you start looking for key words, and a lot of your Bibles will have these little margin notes or things at the bottom of that passage, and you can look up to see where there's some related concepts, that's usually a good place to go if you're thinking, this doesn't make sense. Well, look at those related passages, and sometimes you'll see the connections. So we have to connect the dots here a little bit. Peter's borrowed concepts come from Jesus' teaching. Watch out! This is Jesus speaking this time. Don't let your hearts be dulled by carousing and drunkenness. We would call that escapism in modern terminology. And by the worries, same word there for anxieties, and in some translations it says, by your anxieties of this life. You see the connecting the dots with already starting to see something about what Peter's been talking about? Don't let that day catch you unaware like a trap. Well, what's what's he saying here? He's saying that somehow it's in our minds when these things take place, and when we're starting to feel anxious, and we don't want to feel anxious thoughts or emotions... What do we tend to do with it as human beings? We don't do well with lots of solid time to be by ourselves, many of us. 
a lot of times we'll default into escapism by doing things that will either A, make us feel good for the moment, temporary, immediate gratification kinds of things, which is escapism, or just distraction. We'll do things that will just distract us from actually feeling what we're feeling and going to God with those feelings and starting to talk it through so that we can find out what the real perspective on life should be. So we don't have an accurate perspective and then our minds just kind of whir and they go into these ruminations and it becomes a negative spiral because of our imaginations that take us to the worst possible place. That's the human nature. He says, but watch out. Don't let your hearts be dulled and don't let the worries or anxieties of this life catch you unaware. Don't let that day catch you unaware. So that when Jesus comes again, we won't be distracted somewhere or thinking about all the wrong thoughts. He says, you've got to arrest this in the mind. It's what you feed your mind where this casting your anxiety is going to be taking place. For that day will come upon everyone living on the earth. Nobody's going to escape from that. But for those who are in Christ, for those who have learned to start getting perspective by checking in with God's word, by worshiping with God's people, by reading God's word, praying about it, studying it, we're going to be, okay, I have perspective. God is working even through this difficult situation. He's with us in the trials. He's got a purpose. I have hope. It's going to be okay. So then when Jesus comes upon us, it's going to be good for you. I've been waiting for this. Rather than being terrified like those who are not in him. Then in Luke 21, 36, keep alert at all times. Sounds really familiar to what we've been seeing in 1 Peter. And pray that you might be strong enough to escape these coming horrors and stand before the Son of Man. When he's saying that standing firm, he's kind of mixing his metaphors a little bit, but he's saying stand firm in your mind. Because everything you're putting into your mind is helping you stand in faith on the solid rock. He's mixing this metaphor to say that this is where we're getting our foundation. It's by the renewal of our mind, which echoes some of the things that the Apostle Paul had talked about. So cast your anxieties on the only one who can actually do something about them. I've spoken with several different people who said they had to stop watching the news for a time because it was so perplexing and aggravating. And I remember one young man who was starting to get really politically active, and he just was ruminating over the world's stage and all the terrible things that were happening, and he was really anxious and upset. You could tell it was bothering him a lot. And I said, well, which of the things that you've just described can you actually change? And he said, well, I, I can't think of one. And I said, well, maybe part of this casting your anxiety on the Lord means that we have to be discerning about which things we can change and which we can't. And we have to trust the one who can on the bigger issues that are beyond our reach. And there's a lot of stuff out there that are like that. I was feeling anxious a couple of weeks ago because we were hearing reports from Haiti where we have a real investment in these people's lives and the pastors that are down there with their churches, no food, rioting in the streets, burning a building at the airport. Now they've ceased the flights from Atlanta that our team would have normally taken to get to Haiti so we could do the training. I mean, things had just fallen apart in Haiti. The same week, I was hearing about Zimbabwe where I've done some mission work and where we have a pastor who's come and spoken for us in the past and things were just about as bad in Zimbabwe as well. Two people that I know personally, which means that now this is becoming personal to me. It's not just some news thing at 11 o'clock and you're thinking, well, those poor people over there. Man, these are my brothers and sisters. 
And I was feeling myself getting more and more irritable and anxious and angry. And I heard my own words coming into my mind saying, well, how much of these things can you actually change? I thought, oh, I guess I can't. Other than giving them over to the Lord and saying, God, I, this is where we need desperately as a church to pray, 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 pray. Because he's the one who can make the changes. And so I went to pray and And you know what? After about five minutes of praying, my anxiety started to leave. And I could feel that I was pegging the meaner one minute and I was down to about a two in my anxiety level after just praying. There's something about casting our anxieties on the Lord by gaining wisdom from God and perspective. And part of that perspective is to say, which things do I have to trust God for and which things does he allow me to change because I can change those things? Most of them have to do with me. If I worry more about which things I can change about myself and less about trying to control other people, my anxiety levels go down. Spiritual maturity and the broken cracker. Uh, Corey, this is one of my stories that I actually planned to share today. I told her this was going to be about a three-story sermon today. Uh, I was by myself because Joy was at work at the Homeless Prevention Agency, helping them out, getting organized, and I had done a lot of study, and I was really into this particular study this week and I was reading a lot and I was doing a lot of uh, cross-referencing and trying to find out some good illustrations and whatnot and then I, I said man I'm getting hungry I, I should probably feed myself I can hear Paula Robinette's admonition that it takes some kind of stupid to forget to eat <laughs> and I was forgetting to eat so I thought I'd better get something so I was just going to put some some boars and cheese on some crackers and feed my brain a little bit and my body and I, so I had these really nice crackers and I love boars and cheese. Good stuff. It's really, you know, got all the right ingredients and herbs and things like that. But I was standing there all by myself, and I was stretching because I'd been sitting too long, and I'm doing all this business, and people would probably think I was having a seizure as I was trying to make my crackers. And then I, I was putting the cheese on this cracker, and the cracker broke in half. And a half of the cracker fell right on the countertop, and the cheese fell off. The cheese slid off my cracker. No surprise to some of you. And because I was by myself, I don't know why I did this. I started acting like I was three years old. And I went, my <laughs> cracker, bro. And then I was laughing at myself for doing that by myself. And then I looked around to see if anybody was watching me do this. I'm sure that none of you ever do that when you're by yourselves, right? And then it dawned on me, why does that not bother me today at my age as it used to when I was three? Because I have perspective. As we mature and we break enough crackers, we realize, you know, my life is going to go on after I've broken this cracker. Just because I broke one cracker and I had to pick up some cheese, my life's going to be okay. And I think sometimes some of us as believers continue to act like spiritual three-year-olds because something happens and we go right back to that triggered place and start acting like we're a three-year-old believer instead of walking with Christ long enough to say, yeah, this is a big deal. I'm not going to trivialize it. This is a big deal. But it's not so big that God can't handle it. That's perspective. And I see that Peter, who's looking to us, going all the way back to when he was trying to be a youthful person and learn to trust by humbling himself and trusting the authority that God's given him. We need to learn to trust. And we need to say, am I acting like a spiritual three-year-old or am I spiritually growing up enough to say, yes, I'm anxious. Why am I anxious? It's because I'm trying to control something I can't control. 
God, help me not to do that. I'm casting my anxiety on you. I trust you. I'm going to change that which I can change, and I'm just going to have to forget the rest and leave it in your camp because you're big enough. And then take a deep breath, pray about it, and go on. And I think that's what I'm gaining from Peter's advice through this chapter. God restores perspective when we do this. And by the way, he says in his writing to them, all these people who have been scattered and who are still suffering persecution, you're not the only ones who suffer. And I know that the devil who prowls around like a lion would like to instill these thoughts in our minds. Poor you. You're the only one who's ever suffered like this. And that's the devil speaking. That's not God speaking. Peter says, you're not the only one who suffers. And lots of other people all around the world who are suffering, and many of them a lot worse than what you're going through right now. And even as I was studying and as I was praying for the people in Zimbabwe and the people in Haiti and some of the people who had contacted me because they had difficult things going on in their week, I was realizing, yeah, that kind of trivializes my own little problems, and they shrink as I'm putting them in perspective. That's part of godly perspective that allows me to cast my anxiety on the Lord. It's godly perspective. All that happens as we combine those four seemingly unrelated concepts that are actually quite related in 1 Peter. And then, thirdly, friends in Christ give you strength to stand. And when he's standing, he doesn't mean physically. He's meaning in faith, bolstered, reminding you of what we have been reminded of today in worship. It's the friends in Christ who give you the strength to, to stand. With the help of Silas, he writes... Whom I regard as a faithful brother, I have written to you briefly. Don't know if Silas actually literally wrote them down like an amanuensis or secretary. Some people did that. Paul talked about having a secretary at times to help him with that. It may have been that he was just helping him by talking through these thoughts with him so that they could put them down and be able to send them out to the other believers. Who was Silas, this guy again? Remember, he was with Paul on two of his missionary journeys. He was there in the earthquake with Paul when they were singing praises at midnight. And the earthquake comes, the doors are flung open, people are saying, uh-oh, they're going to escape. The jailer's getting ready to commit Harry Carey. Paul says, don't, don't do that yet, we're all still here. And then he leads him to the Lord. And then Paul and Timothy in Corinth. We look at Corinth and we see what a messed up church that had to have been. For a while, which is why we have some really good advice coming from the Apostle Paul there. But Timothy was with him there. And Timothy proved to be a faithful brother in the Lord and a faithful minister and even a faithful preacher because he preached some in Corinth. That's the same Silas. And apparently he was strong as a brother helping Peter as well, including being right here with Peter as he was writing this letter. It's kind of neat to start to see the connections because we see these as real individuals. As you're going to see in our winter Bible study coming up, at the end of January, by the way, because you're going to have some visits from some of the Old Testament prophets. And they will show up and talk to you about, why did God call me? What did he ask us to say? To whom? Why did you have to say that? Why did you have to say it in that manner? That's really strange. What does it mean? All that's going to be a part of our winter Bible study. So it'll start putting some of those people together for you in your mind. So as we think about Paul and Silas and Timothy and Peter, all these were contemporaries and they relate to one another differently. And this is how Silas and Peter were related. And then he says something strange. She who is in Babylon. What? Chosen together with you sends you her greetings. Who is she who is in Babylon? A couple of things that I've thrown them right out. 
is an actual church in Babylon. There probably wasn't any church, Christian church in Babylon, the actual place known as Babylon at that time. Uh, she is, who is in Babylon, probably means the Christian church in Rome. Good evidence to that. Why? Because the people would refer cryptically to the people that were of Babylon as those who opposed God's people. So he'd say, the church in Rome, from which this is probably being written at that time, and he's sending that out to them, it was a way of saying, all these other believers who have known what persecution feels like, because they're coming up against those who oppose the people of God, this church, all these brothers and sisters, are sending their greetings as well. I think that makes the most sense of anything. Some people said they thought it was Peter's wife. And so does my son Mark send his greetings. Now, is that a, a real son? No. He's a son in the Lord, just like in Paul, his use for Timothy, saying he was my son in the Lord. He actually used that phrase. Peter had truncated it by that time and just called him my son instead of saying my son in the Lord. Joy and I have been blessed with several sons in the Lord. And she didn't tell them she wanted to be called Mama Joy, but they all call her Mama Joy. It just kind of seemed like it just fit. I'm not going to tell you what they call me. <laughs> Mark had acted as Peter described in verses 5 through 7. Peter had ministered with Mark, knowing him as a younger man, and had seen how he had humbled himself and submitted to Peter's authority. And so he was able to write, thinking, okay, I can send my greetings, and there's this young man who embodies everything that I've been talking to you about in this section of my letter, because that was the kind of guy Mark was as well. Friendships are forged and strengthened through shared trials, as Peter had shared, with people like he had mentioned in his letter, shared ministry, and prayer for one another. And man, have we ever seen that in this church. Some of us have endured some trials together, and it knit us together because we have a shared survival story, and God was the hero of the story. There are shared ministry experiences. All of us as elders have shared some ministry experiences in Haiti, and it'll, I'll never be the same because of that. They're profoundly uh, strong influences on people's lives when we minister together, especially in kind of scary situations or situations that feel bigger than any of us can handle by ourselves. Some of you world changers have experienced that, working alongside other people that became close in the short time you were together because you were sharing in tough ministry together. Prayer for one another. Every one of those uh, watershed moments in my life that I've referred to, I had strong people praying for me through those times. And if I hadn't had that prayer, I don't know if I would have survived through those tumultuous times together. I remember the one meeting when I had to gather people in my home living room so that I was meeting with some elders and a man who was causing difficulties. And they said, we won't leave until you're done and you give us a report about how the meeting went. And they prayed the entire time we were in that meeting. I was scared spitless going into the meeting. And when I came out, I saw that God had answered every one of those people's prayers because they were the power plant praying for us in our living room while we were taking care of business. And God was the hero. That's where friendships are just forged and developed and strengthened. And I'm grateful that we have a number of strong friendships developed here, but it brings me to something as well that I would like to share with you. First of all, let's do a little wrap-up. Humility is a remedy for anxiety. Humble ourselves to the one who can do something about it. Allow him 
to give us discernment and to choose which things I can change and to know the difference because I can't change that one, so I'm going to have to trust God for that. I'm going to quit being anxious about that which I can't change. Secondly, resist the enemy by what you feed your mind, which brings me to another application that I'd like to suggest. God has gifted every one of you. He's proven that. We've gone through that before. If he's gifted you for a reason, then instead of defaulting to doing some behavior that causes you anxiety, stop it. Walk away from that and go do something related to your spiritual giftedness that's going to put beauty out into the world and it's going to edify somebody else. That's a great action plan. If you're going to walk away from that which causes anxiety and do something productive rather than being a receiver of anxious thoughts, produce positive things that are going to put beauty out into the world and reflect God's glory to somebody else. And just do it. Do it on the spot. Let God's Holy Spirit prompt you into saying, "Uh uh-oh, I'm going down that rumination road again. I don't want to do that. I'm going to turn. I'm going to walk a different, different direction. I'm going to put some beauty out into the world so the beauty of God's holiness can be seen. Do that, and I think that you'll start to see that anxiety start to lift a little bit. For me, I, I haven't shared a whole lot about that, but for me, music is therapeutic. And I can find if I've been studying a long time and I've met with lots of people and there's lots of burdens starting to heap up on me and I'm feeling that anxiety coming about, if I can get behind my laptop and start composing or arranging a little piece of music, I can't think about that other stuff because it's totally wrapping me up in something that I have to focus on And it's one little tiny way of trying to put something beautiful out into the world that's going to change the world in a tiny little itty-bitty way. And I love doing that. And God uses that to restore my soul because that's the way he gifted me. Now, not all of you are going to find that anxiety relief in the same way. But if you're watching some programs on TV and you're thinking, man, this is depressing. Well, that ought to be a clue. Stop it. Why do I continually watch this if I find that it's just depressing me? Turn it off. You have a choice. You can start saying, what can I do that's going to edify somebody else? How am I gifted? I'll use my gift. I'll do it my way. For some, it may be a note. It may be a card. It may be a phone call. It may be a text. Whatever. It may be gardening. Go over and plant some tulips in the snow. I don't care. But do something positive for somebody, and all of a sudden your anxiety starts to shift because you're not ruminating on those things that you can't change and that are just making you depressed. And third, friends in Christ give you strength to stand. Very unlikely example, I'll close with this. Some of you have seen the early Boris Karloff 1935 film, The Bride of Frankenstein. It's a bastion of theological truth. In one scene, particularly. And, and it's a little cryptic. You have to look for it. And don't think about the, the later one because you'll get the wrong impression. You have to go back to the 1935 version. There's the Frankenstein's monster. It's the early Frankenstein. You get the tall, narrow head and the little bolts on the sides, you know, the, the old Frankenstein. And he's stumbling through the woods and he scrapes his arm on some trees and, and he finds a cabin in the woods And he sees it, and he hears beautiful violin music playing, and there's the man who's inhabiting that cabin who's a violinist, but he's also blind. And the monster creeps up to the window, and he's listening, and you can tell he's mesmerized by the music, and he's going, oh. And something trips, maybe it's a twig outside or something, and gets the blind man to stop playing, and he's thinking, is somebody there? And he actually walks outside and says, somebody there? And the monster, shh, 
you know, shirks back into the shadows. And then he goes back to playing again, and then the monster gets closer. And finally, the monster gets enough courage to walk through the front door. And he walks in, and the violinist senses that somebody's there, and he says, is somebody there? Come in, friend. Come in. And then he hears some of these groanings from the monster, but he can't speak. And he goes, oh, I discern that you have no ability to speak. Well, I have no ability to see. Perhaps we can help one another. And he actually thanks God, gets down on his knees at bedtime and says, thank you, God, that you've finally seen my need and you've sent me a friend. And through the course of the time together in that little cabin, this man puts some humanity into the monster, teaches him a few words, including friend, plays the violin for him, cooks for him, and touches him, anoints his hand where he's gotten scratched in the woods. And then, of course, it turns out rather badly because some hunters come and they see the monster, they try to kill him, they wind up burning the guy's cabin down. But that's not the point of the illustration. (laughs) (laughs) The point of the illustration as the monster's walking off into the woods with the burning cabin in the background saying, friend, friend, the point of the illustration is one of the most humanizing things God gives us as gifts our friends. And when we have godly friends who will help us gain godly perspective as we study God's word together, pray for one another, shift our perspective by talking things out and realizing, you know, I need to cast that anxiety on the Lord because I can't change that. That's what friendships do for us. So I got two action plans for you that I'd like to suggest to you this week. One came to me just this week because we got something in the mail from Scotland. And it was a card from one of the friends that we had met while we were over there. And she had just been thinking about us and thought she would send us a card to tell us that. And said, I hope that you're doing fine as you're making your way back into your jobs and into the ministry back there in Michigan. And we were just thinking about you. And I just thought I would let you know that. We're praying for you. God bless you. It's a beautiful thing. Totally came out of the blue. It was such a shock. And it was such a a booster shot of encouragement because it came out of nowhere. Well, it came out of Scotland, but you know what I mean. In the mailbox. But if you could do that for somebody else, and just let's pay it forward, keep it going. I think that we can really help bolster one another's faith and remind ourselves, yeah, we're not alone in this stuff. Whatever we're going through that's causing us anxiety, you're not alone. We'll pray for you. We'll keep encouraging you and bolstering each other in strength. And then also, secondly, and this is a challenge This is one that for me has been a challenge because I can get isolated with my own small group of friends. That's to make a new friend. And I have a couple of unlikely ones that I have made because of the concert band that I'm playing in now, and they've turned out to be the the least likely people I would have thought God would have chosen to become friends. Because they're kind of weird. (laughs) But then so am I. So it works out pretty well. And I'm finding that we're Finding some things in commonality, even though we're from wildly different backgrounds, and we start to share these little five-minute snippets of conversation, and we're starting to understand each other and appreciate each other, even though we have many differences. And I would say, I'm going to keep challenging myself to make a new friend so that I don't get isolated. And I think that as God starts to get involved in that process, He can do things that would line up people and put them in our path that we wouldn't necessarily have thought, oh. I think this person could actually turn into a friend. But you need to invest a little time and some prayer in doing that. 
Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for the Apostle Peter, for the fact that he wasn't just a fisherman, that he left all that to follow you and he became a fisher of man. I thank you that he became a shepherd with a shepherd's heart and that he was able to write these things to us that we've been studying because there's such a wealth of spiritual advice and counsel. And I pray that we will all continue to walk in these words that have been spoken to us through Peter because they come originally from you since you're the one who inspired it all. And I thank you because we're getting to know you better and we understand what a friend Jesus is for us. And that we're not alone even when we have reason to be anxious or irritable or angry or upset or depressed. That all those things are things that you deeply understand because Christ experienced every one of those emotions. And yet, He wants to be our friend who shares in everything we go through. And He wants to lift us up and give us hope and show us that eternal perspective so that life doesn't have to be a series of broken crackers. And I pray these things in Jesus' name.